Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Wildlife, episode 26. I'm your host, Jason Goldman, and my guest this week is the wonderful Christina Ochoa. You might know Christina from her appearances on Modern Family or The Neighbors, or maybe from her role last year on the TV show Matador. But what you might not know is that in addition to being an actress, Christina also has a background in science. She studied oceanographic engineering in the Canary Islands and shark science at James Cook University in Australia before coming to L.A., where in addition to her work in acting, she also hosted the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair last year and co-founded The Sirens, which is a group of actresses who are also committed to science and to STEM education. And if that's not enough, she also has a podcast called No Brainer, K-N-O-W Brainer, which you can find uh, on all of her websites, which she will uh, tell you about at the end of this episode. If you like what you hear, and I hope that you do, don't forget to subscribe to The Wildlife on iTunes or on Stitcher. And if you really, really like what you hear, maybe even give the podcast a review or a rating. All right, here comes The Wildlife, episode 26 with Christina Ochoa. the new thing that you learned recently so recently i learned are you recording already yeah oh i didn't know oh, no, okay it's... got it sorry so recently i learned uh, a little bit further on what is considered the red tide which oh, yeah. is these phytoplankton blooms and they are uh, caused by diatoms which are a specific type of algae and they are single cell single celled organisms but they are covered in a silica shell and when these red tides come in, which is this big bloom of them, filter fish and shellfish basically can't help but ingest them. Because they're taking in water normally. Exactly. Because they, they have no choice. and they're, they're not selective when right, it comes right. to their food. So they just keep ingesting these really large amounts. And to them, it's not toxic. But to fin fish and to other organisms, it's that, highly that toxic. That eat the little fish. That eat the shellfish. It's very toxic. Huh. So you have these sardines and mussels and oysters and stuff that are with, you know, that have high levels of these diatoms, right. of these um, silica shells and the toxins. And then you have sea lions and seagulls and humans right. ingesting them. And they're getting things like temporary amnesia. So there's a whole term of Whoa. temporary amnesia from eating shellfish. I didn't know that was a thing. It's, it is a thing. And what's funny is we've known about this for so long. And in 1991, they shut down the shellfish fisheries and the whole market collapsed because they stopped production of because, shellfish. Like during a red tide or something? During a red tide. They found out that people were dying. People were getting uh, nausea. They were getting diarrhea. They were getting all these harmful effects from eating. And cognitive effects. Like that. that's the mind-blowing part to me. Like It's crazy. Not just that you get sick, but that it messes with your memory. You lose short-term memory completely. That's it does something to your glutamate receptors on okay. your brain that I'm not sure on exactly sure um but what was interesting to me is the studies that are being done on the animals about this 
Because of course, as a person, you can go into the doctor and you can verbalize yeah. and communicate, oh, I'm having hallucinations or I don't or feel I don't too very anything. well. <laughs> I don't remember what happened five minutes ago. But a sea lion can't. Right. So they're That's getting, why veterinary medicine is so interesting. It, it is really fascinating. And you're having all these animals that cannot communicate and they're having very bizarre behaviors. And this is the reason. And you can only find out after you do a urine test. Interesting. Yeah. So, but this is something that we have known about for a while. Like, is this in the news? Is it, was there a red tide recently somewhere? Um, there was. The last document, right now the controls for shellfish, because obviously people don't really care about sea lions and seagulls being they affected. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but they do care about humans right. getting short-term memory loss. So the inspections and health precautions are in place so that we don't ingest that. But at the same time, anytime it happens in the natural world, and it only happens in a very small area um, in Monterey, California. Huh. So it's the only place in the world or the only place in the U.S.? No, I think it's the only place in the U.S. Okay. I think. So I was going to say, I thought that I learned when I was like a kid in like school that possibly one of the explanations for like in the Passover story, mm-hmm. for, like the Nile River turning to blood. Yes. Was that it was there was like a red tide. Yes. And it looked red. I've heard about that. There's also been a lot of huge red tides when it comes uh, in the Mediterranean. Right, right. Um, there's been some in the Red Sea, you know, eh, ironically. Um, but uh, I think that's in the U.S. In the US it's limited to like Monterey, Which California. is like where all the pinnipeds come to breed. Exactly. Like all those sea lions <laughs> and seals, elephant seals. Yep. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so that was that was recently I learned about that, and I thought it was fascinating, and I and I just thought about the ramifications of these animals not being able, again, having these weird behaviors, not being able to communicate them, us not being able to diagnose them by the behaviors, right. only by performing urine tests. Yeah, I mean, it like it sort of underscores this like like I don't know. This is something that's quite obvious to me, but I don't know if it's become obvious through like years of reading about these things. Uh-huh. Um, but like ecosystems like are connected like like if something happens to one set of like organisms the other set of organisms is going to be affected whether it's because the the predators eat the prey or because the you know affected organisms are like releasing you know through their like urine and feces other things into the ecosystem that the others were gonna you know eat or you know whatever um um i don't know if that actually made sense but like ecosystem, like every set of organisms in an ecosystem, like impacts the others. Yeah. Um, and humans are in every ecosystem, pretty much <laughs> on the planet. Um, like I was just, uh, this is not the new thing that I had prepared, but I just wrote this piece um, for Earth Touch about hippos in uh, Africa, um, and it turns out that like hippo crap, like hippo poop is actually really important for some of these like uh, aquatic ecosystems. Mm-hmm. There are these um, like uh, uh, fish that basically eat hippo poop because okay. um, there's still lots of good nutrients in there. Um, Do they and, only and exclusively eat hippo poop? Like is the whole well, species so, dependent on no. it? No. So, so what they did in this particular study is they took um, they took uh, like fish and uh, some other organisms some like invertebrates insects and stuff from like a hippo pool and also from a pool that has not had hippos in like the last 60 years Mm -hmm. or something like that um so the same species like lives in both um but there's there's some kind of connection where 
the animals that eat the hippo poop then feed other animals and like some of these fish are really important fisheries um like that provide people with protein um in africa and like if you take the hippos out of the equation because they are in decline like almost every other megavertebrate in africa um then you're like totally unbalancing this, this ecosystem which doesn't only have effects on like the other the fish non-human the, animals yeah. um but is has potentially far-reaching impacts on like the way we eat yeah um and like the availability of food and like if you take out the hippos um which i, I think hippos are the most underrated of the african megafauna I think that's super cool. But if you take th those out, you know, most people think hippo conservation, like why do we yeah. need to save the hippos? Um, like what do they do for us? Um, and in some sense, like we shouldn't be doing wildlife conservation because of what the animals can do for us. Um, or at least some people would have do you an think, argument. Do you really think that? Because I, I would argue with that and I would assume if I had to guess that that would not be your opinion. Well, but this is a debate in the conservation like world right now. Um, I mean, about the it, reasons it, why is this kind of like when they estimated the values of the oceans recently yeah, yeah. at three billion dollars or something like that? Yeah. So there's this idea. Uh, I mean, this is not a new like argument within the field, but it's like kind of flared up again recently, mm -hmm. been written about all over the place. Um, like the idea of ecosystem services, um, where like if you can sort of quantify the economic value of and the impact of a these. given species or ecosystem. Um, and what the impacts would be for losing it um, or dramatically altering it, um, that might be strong impetus to engage in conservation. Mm -hmm. um, and there are others who think that nature ought to be conserved for its own sake yeah. because biodiversity is inherently important. Um, I'm definitely on that camp. Yeah, I mean, and so am I. But I also recognize that like ecosystem services is a valuable tool that we have in our conservation toolbox. There are some stakeholders, like lawmakers, for example, like businesses who care about the dollar um, sign. Who care Absolutely. about the dollar sign, and 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 if that's the way we are going to be able to reach them, I'm then... all for any people. I mean, normally the term gimmick is used a lot. Um, on how to attract people to whether it be just natural resources or how to conserve them and preserve them and stuff. I'm all for any gimmick that gets somebody interested and invested in, in preservation just because it doesn't really matter. The motivation behind it ultimately is not going to matter. The bottom line is how many people right. can we get it really get on board? Right. How many and species can we save? Exactly. Right. I there's um, there was a tweet recently. Uh, Wallace J Nichols. Do you know who he is? That sounds very familiar. He wrote Blue Mind. He has this whole Blue Marble movement okay. going on, um, all about ocean preservation, and. I remember seeing the tweet when the whole news of this, you know, uh, kind of the financial impact of what the oceans cost and what they should be worth is $3 billion to the economy or something like that or something or 300. Right. I can't remember the exact amount, but I remember seeing his tweet was like, what is uh, a turtle worth? Because there was a whole list of different right. sea organisms and their monetary value. And his was like, what is a turtle worth or cost? And then the answer was more than that. Right. And it was it, it's true because you it's very hard to quantify with a dollar amount the impact like you said they are so intertwined that if you took a, you know we could establish a hippo is worth 
$5,000 to the government. Right. But at the end of the day, if you take away the hippos, again, you're affecting this fish community. Same thing with, you know, the red tide and, yeah. and same thing with if you could take the fin fish away or you take the shellfish away like they tried to do with this market, you're yeah. affecting not only the seagulls and the sea lions, but the fishermen, the people who live off of this, yeah. the people who are in the factories, the people who are in the fisheries. Yeah, so those, I mean, those people who like are terrified of the idea of ecosystem services. And like for me, it's a useful tool. Mm -hmm. um, but there are people who are like, well, what happens when you find a species that needs saving that doesn't doesn't have a value or, mm -hmm. or, or yeah. doesn't have a high enough value? Like what then? But like, I don't know. I just think, I think it's a, there are people for whom conservation is not inherently important mm -hmm. um, or at least that they don't think about it as important, um, you know. But like then you go and explain to them that the reason I mean, and I think probably podcast listeners who've listened to previous episodes will have heard me say this a dozen times. But like one of my favorite examples of ecosystem services, like in a way that you would not normally think about, um, is the reason why you can go hiking here in uh, in California and not worry about getting Lyme disease is because we have western fence lizards and alligator lizards, because which 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 you don't have. On the East Coast, where you like, you do have to do those. You have to seriously do a tick check yeah. at the end of a hike or whatever, and you should here too, because um, we do have ticks. But it turns out that when the ticks bite um, a fence lizard or an alligator lizard, there's actually something in their blood that neutralizes the bacteria that creates Lyme disease. Um, so then a tick flies away and bites someone else. Maybe yeah. it bites a human, but that human's not going to get Lyme disease. Wow! And it's because of these lizards. And if we lose these lizards, there, there, there will be an impact on public health. Yeah. Um, like that is, and, and, and there is probably an associated dollar amount with it. I don't know what it is. I'm sure it's yeah. big because <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I've never gotten, <laughs> I've never had Lyme disease. Yeah. Um, um, I've never, I've not really done much hiking in back east anyway. Um, Have you done like, much hiking here? I, yeah, I mean, I like to, I'm trying to do more. I'm trying to like, like sort of hike all the Santa Monica mountains so that like, I'm trying to hit like every little park within it because mm -hmm. the Santa Monica mountains national Re recreation area is like a mosaic of like federal and state and county and municipal parks um, and like private lands. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying to like work my way through the whole chain. Um, yeah, I like to. One of my favorite encounters um, with wildlife was when I got lost in Topanga. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> and you took video. I took video, and it was a disaster. I was trying to do um, uh, for my, my no-brainer kind of like podcast videos online, whatever. I was trying to film myself and do this kind of nature video of like, you know, describing the species that you may encounter on a hike in Topanga. Um, and I was very unprepared. And like Jason once put it, I could almost do a what not to do video <laughs> just from what happened. I don't um, remember. I'm sure I said that because it's like something I would say, but I don't remember what it was. You Well, I went with no water. Right. <laughs> uh, first of all, I it's went... Mistake number one. <laughs> mistake number one. I went with no water, no food, no supplies. I thought it would be something where I would park the car, go in, do a one hour right. well, trek or whatever. Normally, like that is how hiking in exactly. LA works. And then come back to the car and be done with it. And then um, I also, B, I wanted to look cute for the video. Mistake number two. So I was wearing tiny, like, white shorts and a tank top. <laughs> I had no protection, not only from the environment, from, from the plants, from poison oak, from bugs, from like, were anything. You even, were you at least, like, even wearing a hat? 
Nope, no hat, no sunscreen, <laughs> no sunglasses. <laughs> um, and then I had basically a tripod that did not adjust and fit with my camera. So I used the tripod to balance my iPhone and recorded right. everything on my iPhone. And I was starting to do this. And you, you saw the deer, which was really cute. And, and I saw beautiful birds. And you have fauna and flora that are very exciting. And I, I decided halfway through to go off the path. <laughs> and I decided, no, oh, that looks like a, a dried up creek. I'm sure if I follow it, I'll find a waterfall. That's Mind mistake you, mistake number two in our drought. It, it hadn't, yeah, it, it had not rained in months. And I didn't even think of it. I was like, I'm sure I'll find a waterfall. <laughs> There's a creek here, obviously. Was there water in it? Nope. And, <laughs> and then I followed the creek. And about an hour and a half later, it was already, I was... It was Tolkien-esque. There were branches. I was jumping rocks. I was trying to get away from the beaten path. Because you were not on a path. I was not on a path. So I this was... Is, this is when you realize what it's like to be an elephant. Like, I, I, I also went, like, hiking with, with a researcher, like, just off, like, not in a trail or anything. Yeah. Um, we were looking for, for some lizards. Um, he was a herpetologist. It was, it was actually Greg Polly who was on this podcast, like, Great. a million episodes ago. Um <laughs> And we were just kind of walking and we went down like from this highway, just like into the, like we were in a national forest or a state park or some sort of official place, uh-huh. but like not, not on a trail. Um, and at some point we like, we had crossed over a creek, like with water in it, um, you know, hopping over the rocks and then we were on the other side and we had to come back eventually to get to our cars. Um, and like, we didn't want to go back the way we came. So it was just a matter of crossing back across the creek at some point. And it was just like, it was, we just like had to brute force it. It was just like, power your way through these branches, like splash across the creek, try not to get too wet. Um, Cause we weren't like dressed for like, we weren't wearing waders or anything. Yeah. Um, and that's when I really learned what it's like to be an elephant to just like trample over every <laughs> plant. Like, I, like I could not, I could not bring down an acacia tree the yeah. way an elephant can. But like but you tried your best. I, you I did your was best. picking like legitimate branches like out of my like socks and stuff for for a while. It was yeah, I, I remember getting bit by every single thing imaginable. Um, and like scratched. Scratched like, everywhere. Our, our chaparral here is like everything, every plant wants to tear Attack your skin you. to shreds. Yep. <laughs> It was really bad. I got lost. Uh, ended up in the palisade somewhere. In like a, I jumped a gate. That's really far from into the a. I know it's really really far. I ended up in like a, I jumped a gate into a gated community <laughs> in a private property, and a security guard instantly came and was like, "Who's there?" You know, like like just. And I was, I was half crying. I don't think I was actually in tears, but I was pretty close because I had been lost for, I had lost the, the creek quote. I'm making air quotes because there was really no creek. I had lost the creek and I had ended up in like an unknown place, no service. I had recorded about three videos at this point saying if my family ever finds this video <laughs> um, and I can't find my way back home, I didn't know if I should make a fire signal. I, I was, yeah. I mean, and the thing is like, like, yeah, we have some wilderness here, but like it's still in the middle of urban Los Angeles. Yeah, but you know what? In all honesty, totally worth it because I managed to get footage of a horned lizard. That's cool. That's pretty rare. Which is pretty rare. Yeah, and um, I I got really close up. It didn't squirt out the blood um, from its eyes, which I was not aware that it would even be able to do until I got home later. And I was like, this is a horned lizard, right? And I looked into <laughs> what they do. And then I saw videos of them squirting. Yeah. 
um, you know, kind of like anti-canine chemicals through I've their eyes. I've never seen a, like in the wild, I've never seen a, I've seen horn lizard roadkill. Oh. But I've not seen um, a live one. That's pretty cool. Mm. Didn't you just go to an exhibit about uh, roadkill? Uh, no, next week at the Natural History Museum. Uh, for those of you who live in LA, there's going to be an awesome talk from a guy who runs the California Roadkill Observation System. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually like roadkill, it gets sad when an animal dies needlessly. Um, and roads are like a super, like roads kill a lot of animals yeah. everywhere in the world. Um but roadkill can still give us a ton of data. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same way that, like, if you're doing citizen science and you find a lizard or a snake or something mm-hmm. or a bird and snap a picture with a picture of it with your phone and upload it, um, you can do the same thing with roadkill. Um, and not only does it still tell you something about the presence, like give you some natural history data about the presence and location um, of these animals, um, but the what the California Roadkill Observation System does is. They sort of look at, uh, like, there are certain hot spots for roadkill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, any road will eventually, like, you'll, you'll find dead animals. But there are certain places that are maybe on important uh, movement corridors for animals or um, are, are near important resources like food or water where you're going to find more roadkill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by putting that, that, that data together, um, then these researchers can make an argument for, well, we should really try to build a wildlife crossing um, you know, an underpass or an overpass or something yeah. um, in this spot because we're losing, you know, hundreds of whatever, turtles, frogs, snakes, birds, deer, yeah. uh, you know, raccoons, possums, squirrels, whatever they are. Um, so the roadkill, it, it's sad, but it's also, it gives you a lot of good And so data. the Natural History Museum is doing like an yeah, exhibit so on it? Well, and... not an exhibit. There's a, they have a series of talks called Cocktails in Citizen Science. Okay. Um and on next Thursday at 5 p.m., um, like it's like May 7th, I think. Um, this guy's gonna do the like they're gonna be cocktails, and then there's and this guy's and then there's gonna be roadkill. Yeah, I don't know if there will be roadkill. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> the last um, like I've I've sort of trained myself when I'm driving somewhere where like there's a slightly higher chance of finding roadkill. Mm-hmm. Like like we find some roadkill like here like in the city like in the urbanized yeah. most urbanized parts, but you like they're mostly like your pigeons and squirrels and things. Yeah. Um, here in the valley, um, where we're recording right now, you, there's probably going to be some more like reptiles and things, lizards, mm-hmm. geckos. Um, but like if I'm driving like in the Angeles National Forest or something, um, or like in the Santa Monica's, I'm keeping my eyes a little bit more open for like interesting, more interesting roadkill. I, I, rem- um, I remember when I was a kid, I um, found with my friends, mind you, I was probably six, something like that, seven, um, and I found a possum which I claimed was a raccoon for about a month. I I insisted it was a raccoon, Uh, but it was a possum. And I found it on the side of the road. We were in Miami. And I picked it up with a shovel and like a toy shovel, like one of those that you use in the sand in the beach, (laughs) a tiny little shovel with its little bucket. And I took it to an operating table. Again, I'm doing air quotes with my friends. And we put on kitchen gloves, like cleaning gloves, the yellow gloves. gloves Because who knows? Well, I thought it was a raccoon. So I was especially (laughs) concerned. Um, But we put on gloves and we performed a dissection on the so-called raccoon. That's awesome. We were all six years old and we were like this. This is the liver. It was probably like the small intestine. <laughs> we were completely off on the anatomy, but um, it was roadkill, and we thought it was a perfect specimen to investigate. I mean, on. and it—I mean, it is. Like, yeah. That's. I mean, 
I don't think my parents would have let me take a part. Oh, that they animal did not know. When I was a child. <laughs> they did not know. They were not aware of this. But that's awesome. When I the when I was just just a few months ago, uh, we found a gopher snake roadkill on the road, um, and like this is the moment when I realized how valuable roadkill science is. Because mm-hmm. um, like we were looking at it and like we were looking at its coloration and it was interesting because it was a little bit like the coloration you find in the coasts yeah. and also a little bit like the coloration you find in gopher snakes in the desert and we were kind of in this transition zone so that was interesting. Um, and the gopher snake is the one that has like the stripe, the yellow stripe no, going along it. Is no, that it? No, no. Uh, or does it look more like a corn snake? My snake idea is not what it should be. Gopher oh. snakes, um, they're sort of a little bit cross-hatched the way like a rattlesnake might be, mm-hmm. um, but they're obviously not rattlesnakes. Got it. Um, no, the ones with the two like white stripes down the sides yeah. are black racers, I think. Okay, I just saw one of those. I went horseback riding, and on the trail, there was one, and it went into the tree, huh. and it was just sitting, like, just, cool. you know, there for, and it was really long. It was at like least, like, fast, four, right? very fast. Yeah, so I found a black racer when I was hiking in... Um, Salsa's Canyon, as mm-hmm. I want to guess. Um, like, I, at the time, I, I, I've i really been trying to do better on my, like, ID, my mm-hmm. wildlife ID skills. We're going to keep calling it the Black Racer, but if you guys out there know no, that it it's wasn't not, Black it's racer. okay. I, no, I, look, I took a photo of it. Just I, like my possum was a raccoon. No, no, but Same I took thing, a, Jason. I took, a, I took a photo of it with my phone, um, like, as it slithered off the trail. Like, we watched it for a few minutes, uh-huh. and it crossed the trail, and um, we stayed out of its way. Like, it was clearly not a rattlesnake. Um... Uh, and I took a picture of it, and I uploaded it to iNaturalist, and I tagged it for Rascals, which is the Reptiles and, Su- Reptiles and Amphibians of Southern California Citizen Science Project mm-hmm. um, here. And when you upload a, a photo to Rascals, you can, or to, to iNaturalist, you can check a box that says need identification ID. help. Yeah. And I uploaded it, and I said, uh, it has the GPS data because mm-hmm. the photo does um, from your phone. And I said, you know, uh, it has the timestamp. So all I had to write was like, um, black snake, black snake, approximately two and a half feet, uh, white stripes along its sides, yeah. like, a, like horizontally. Um, and you know, the people on iNaturalist and, uh, the other users can, can ID it for you. Um, or like whoever runs the study that you're uploading it to, like they're like, that's a black racer, which apparently oh. is, um, like a good, a good sighting because like they're pretty fast and they're a little bit, um, shy, I guess, yeah. or cryptic. I had a um, when I was a kid. I my my father um, had a house that we would go to in the summers in Isla, Isla Morada, which is in the in the Keys in the Florida Keys, and we would catch snakes and I would keep them as pets for about a week, um, and then, and then release, release them. them. Yeah, yeah just just to study them. I've heard about this recently. People who like they will let their kid. Um, I don't remember who I was talking to, but who said like the rule when he was growing up was. Any, like, lizard or snake or whatever that he found, he could keep as a pet for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he had to, like, release it back to where he found it. Yeah. Which I think is, like, a brilliant strategy for, like... It was great. I learned about things like, that I would have otherwise never experienced. Yeah, like, it balances I got the animal welfare. Yeah. And, like, the... Educational kind like, of... Like, inspiring it, your child's curiosity. Yeah. We, my father put his hand in a mailbox one time, and a um, corn snake bit him. And so he just brought it home and we put it in a little terrarium that we would have. It would be empty except for whatever we would catch. We'd catch toads, we'd catch lizards, we'd catch snakes. And we put it in there and then I got to like look it up and we would go to the library because at that time we no one had smartphones no yeah. and no one had internet. Um, so we would go to the library and research it and like, oh, Florida, reptiles and snakes and this. And then at one point we caught an indigo snake. 
which is I just did an indigo snake story. They're so cool. The largest native snake in North America. Huge. They're so big. They're pitch black. Like, I'm not a snake person, but these are beautiful snakes. Stunning. And aren't they, um, if I remember correctly, mind you, again, I was like eight. But if I remember correctly, they're also um, very common in Middle Eastern dances. Like, they're the the Middle Eastern version of Salma Hayek and From Dust Till Dawn, where they would use these snakes as part of their seven veil dances and things like that. I I remember reading that. I mean, indigo snakes are native to North America. Mm-hmm. But maybe there's some, like, related snake from the Middle maybe. East? Maybe. Yeah, I, I um, don't know. I remember reading that in a book yeah, again. I was native eight. to, like, Florida and Georgia, and uh, they were driven out of Mississippi, and they've been driven out of Alabama. But the, the reason why I wrote about them is this effort in Alabama to reintroduce them. Oh, but, really? Yeah, they're native to the southern, to the... Yeah, to the, this uh, was in the Florida long case. Longleaf pine ecosystems of the yep. south. And it was stunning. It yeah. was my first real Jet experience black. with a snake. It was twice as long as I was. Yeah. Um, it was huge and it was, yeah, the first time I kind of had to handle a snake that was large and had to learn and my dad would help me and, you know, we kept it in this like really big, um, terrarium and that one only probably we kept for like two days cause it was, snake. yeah, it's a big snake. You can't, um, and now I have snakes, but I've had, I've had pythons, I've had red tail boas, um, Riker right now, which is my current pet. He's a python, but I had this Burmese python okay. that a friend gave me. And she was, can I, can I curse? Yeah. She was a bitch. <laughs> she was terrible. She was in her enclosure and she was so aggressive um, that every single time I opened the enclosure to feed her, to grab her, to touch her, to handle her, because you're supposed to handle them so that they get used to being handled. And every single time I would, she would bite me. No mistake, she wasn't confusing me for anything else. She was just a bitch. And when you have snakes um, that have, you know, their fangs are kind of like hooks. Exactly. I don't know what the term is, but they kind of go backwards. So once they bite, if you yank your arm, you might completely destroy, or you might destroy their jaw. If they're too small, you know, they don't have the musculature to pull because that's not what it's designed to do. It's designed to kind of help the food go inward when they constrict after, when they start swallowing so you could really hurt them so i wasn't allowed to put you know like pull every time she would bite me i'd have to let her and put her dunk her inside a bucket of water so i was already prepared with (laughs) the bucket of water or the bathtub until she you know she's gonna drown so she lets go and she comes up but it was terrible interesting so so here's an interesting question that i have for you because because you you do have a snake now um i I mean, I think having pet snakes in general is okay, mm-hmm. um, even though they're not, like, domesticated. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I pretty much blame every, like, invasive reptile on the pet trade. Yeah. I mean, and that's a reasonable it's, it's blame. True. It is. Because the, like, exotic pet trade, and, like, snakes are exotic pets because they're not domesticated. Um, and in general, exotic pets are not pets, but mm-hmm. I think for sometimes with, like, certain species of, like, snakes and lizards, it's, like, mm-hmm. okay. Um, we're not talking about, like, monkeys. Yeah. Um, or tigers. Even then, I mean, some of, uh, and I know that some of the pets, snakes, like a Burmese python is something that you should not have as a pet. Right. And like, and it's, I mean, the reason we have a Burmese python infestation in the Florida Everglades, mm-hmm. uh, I think the estimates right now are something like 150,000 of them. Yeah. Um, and they're like eating up everything, um, is because of the pet trade. Yeah. Um, and there were also a lot of reptiles that became, like they were spotted here and there. I mean, everything's in Florida. Um, it's a land of invasive <laughs> species. 
Um, but after 1992, when Hurricane Andrew came through, there would be these um, big like reptile warehouses, yeah, um, like basically on the Everglades, and like the hurricane came through and destroyed them, and all of a sudden they're just Out these in, like breeding colonies yeah. <laughs> of reptiles everywhere. Um, it's really tough. The um, a I guess uh, I recently went to the Wildlife Way Station. And, yeah, I was there recently too. Yeah, and in talking with the uh, founder, she was telling me that she wanted to have, they used to have a reptile trailer, um, but then they didn't have enough funding to keep it up and, and supply what these animals needed. So then a millionaire in Malibu, nameless millionaire, has two reticulated pythons, which are, if you don't know them, they are huge. They're like anacondas. They're giant. Yeah. And they eat goats. <laughs> like they're no longer, they're past the bunny and the chicken phases, and they eat goats. And he has two of them in his mansion. Why? I don't know. And he decided I just that don't, he, I just don't get the, like, the motivation. Like a puppy you can play with. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I have a snake. It's definitely not a large snake. Um, no, but his skin, I mean... When the last time he shed, like that's like taller than I am. Yeah, that's uh, six foot eight. Like he obviously spends a lot of his time balled up because that's that's, a that's species. what you tend that's, to find. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he's a ball python basically, and uh, the reason that I kind of lean towards that species versus any other snake as a as a pet is because they are as an educational tool very useful because anybody can pet them anybody can touch them kids can touch them they don't have that reflective aggression instinct when they feel scared they curl up into a ball hence the name yeah you tend to animals tend to i mean it also depends on the individual and their like personality but animals tend to be like you hear about Fight animals and hear about flight Flight. animals. Flight, yeah. Um, and I, my understanding is also that like ball pythons are more like flight animals. They are, and and for my brother and sister who are you know little kids and stuff, I wanted to have something that they could learn from and they could not have a fear of, uh, but that they could also handle and understand without me fearing them actually getting hurt or having someone like the Burmese python who just kept biting me. So do you use Riker educationally? Um. I do on a very private, intimate, like, yeah, small no, scale. You don't, you don't like bring him to museums. I, I no, I don't. I don't bring him to museums. Um, I have definitely had I like intentions, which are great, but <laughs> nothing happens with them. Of doing a lot of videos and uh. stuff when it comes to uh, herpetology, um, but I do use it when it comes to friends and family, right. including my own, just to educate them a little bit on what these animals are really like i guess there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to snakes yeah i mean just like with spiders yeah they are in some ways inherently scary to us Mm -hmm. like we evolved to be like that sort of slithery motion is Mm -hmm. like inherently salient to us like we notice it um i think also part of the reason why they creep us out is because they kind of move in unexpected ways Mm -hmm. like you can't really predict how they're gonna move and I think the same way that some of the creepy insects are creepy. Yeah. It's because they move in an unexpected way, like a little bit uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, me, like growing up, I, like I wasn't, I was not into the snakes. Yeah. Um, like I never had the snake face. I never really had the like lizard face either. Like I wasn't the kid crawling around looking for lizards. Yeah. Um, like I came to these things much later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, but like even still, like, like I, I think snakes are cool. I, you know, write about them. I in proximity to them i mm-hmm. like going to see them at the zoo um but they're still sort of the one tax on that like i w- don't want to touch touch like and i'm not like one of those people who needs to touch animals mm-hmm. but like when i have an opportunity to do it to handle an animal like it's cool mm-hmm. um 
when it's done like ethically and appropriately um i have no need to handle yeah a snake i think um i think it's tricky because when it comes to pets like snake uh, snakes or or any exotic animal um i think that having it as a pet is something that needs to be i mean all ownership of pets has to be responsible pet ownership let let me preface it by saying that any animal that you have that you take under your care is that relies on you and is not just you know we we have hummingbird feeders that's not having a yeah, pet that's different. you know but um any kind of pet that is going to rely on you has to be done responsibly but when it comes to an animal like a snake i definitely advocate for people being that extra step of responsibility yeah. when it comes to a social awareness b the idea that you are perpetuating or in somehow helping fund um a pet trade so I think that, you know, I, I didn't do as much research as I wanted to when I first initially got um, my snake. And then later, I kind of learned a little bit more about what it means to even, and I didn't necessarily, I didn't pay for my snake. And for me, that's kind of like, oh, I washed my hands when I did it, right. which doesn't, it's not the case. Um, right, I mean, you're, it's still, you still set a certain kind of an example exactly. for other people. Exactly. And I, and I think it's something that's very tricky. I don't, it's like, it's like getting a tattoo. I know that sounds stupid and the comp is a little bit strange, but okay. I have five tattoos. But if anyone asks me, do they want, like, should I get a tattoo? My instinctual answer is always no. So it's kind of like, do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> kind of a weird thing where... I did it. Would I do it again? Maybe not. Okay. But, um, but now that you've taken on that responsibility. But now like, that I've taken it, I just want to do it the best way I can yeah. and use it for the best. So in my head, is it okay if now I'm like educating other people and people around me and, and um, kids around me on what it is to have this animal and that they shouldn't be scared and learn about them and um, – Maybe. I'm, I'm trying to justify it in whatever way I can, I guess. I mean, I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, it's not like... Like, animal welfare is important whether you're talking about a western fence lizard or a rhesus monkey. Yeah. But, like, it is a lot different to have a, like, pet rhesus monkey than, a, than a pet lizard or yeah. a pet snake. Um, like, their social needs are different. Mm-hmm. Their d- diets are different. Um Pretty, I, I can't imagine a snake owner who is going to like dress up their snake in clothes. I but really people hope do that. Not, people do but, that with their pet monkeys, yeah. and it drives me absolutely yeah. insane. Um, so I think there is a difference, like mm-hmm. or at least a, a like there are some shades of gray. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, yeah, like if if you are you know you've taken on the responsibility, you're not gonna like if you're if you get tired of your snake, you're not gonna go dump him into your backyard. Of course, right. There, there um, has to be, there has to be an awareness of what you have. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, but honestly, isn't it that like way dog, with dog? Right? Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, isn't it the same kind of with dogs? Yeah. People Although, get I mean, pet I, dogs and then they just dump them and leave them on the street when they realize they can't handle something that needs to be yeah. walked three times a day and fed three times yeah. a day and, and they taken do, care and they of. They shouldn't do that either. But at least in those cases, um, like we the have impact. some, we have, well, there's, there's a different kind of impact on the ecosystem. Um, certainly. I mean, like when you if you dumped a cat onto the streets, it would be in some ways equally devastating the ecosystem as the pythons are in Florida because they eat 
all the birds. But what about, um, for example, even goldfish, which we would think are yeah, harmless. The Colorado, yeah. um, there's a whole lake in Colorado yeah. that is now infested with goldfish. like goldfish. Yeah, or, but, is it goldfish or koi? It's goldfish, right? Uh, I think it's goldfish. Either one. It's but, it's something that you can get in the pet store yeah, for a dollar and yeah. give to your kid. And then now th- this whole lake is just infested and yeah. overrun by them. But what I was going to say is that like for some of these domesticated animals, at least we have some systems in place. Um, like municipal systems to deal with these things, like rescue centers. Like we have, and we have pounds. animal shelters and things, yeah. and, and you know, they probably euthanize too many animals, and like there's problems. Um, but at least we have systems in place to deal with these those kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of you know some wildlife sanctuaries, we don't really have systems to deal. Like if someone finds a snake on the street, like we don't have shelters for snakes in the same way and that Um, every once in a while like an animal will wind up being taken by a zoo if they have space like last year we there was that like albino cobra that was found in la and then it's now in the san diego zoo and the la zoo has a um crocodile or an alligator reggie the alligator i think um who was found in like uh in one of the lakes in los Feliz, who like now was the zoo but you talk to people and this is something else that i learned at the wildlife way station talking to the owner uh martin martina um like there are people who buy these exotic pets and we're talking about like big cats and like primates and you know not lizards um who like honestly believe that when their animal outgrows their situation that they can just turn them over to the zoo yep and that is not how zoos work yeah not to mention that the places like the wildlife way station they are completely funded by donations so they don't have the infrastructure to take on as many animals as they need to and most of the time i remember um her talking a lot about how cubs are not on the market for rescue centers or places like the way station to take them in because everybody wants cubs whether it be uh zoos whether it be educational um organizations whether it be the film industry everybody wants cubs trainers private uh sector less harmful and they're easy to train and then all of a sudden these lions or these tigers they grow (laughs) and then they have nowhere to go same thing with chimpanzees exactly and she's like we have very limited space we it's very hard for us to turn down an animal but sometimes we just don't have the capacity the food the resources these are large cats they're eating tons of meat a day it's something that's really hard for them to manage when the only awareness and the only funding that they get is from people finding out about them and going on their website and donating whatever they can yeah yeah it was um i mean wildlife sanctuaries do an incredible service but at some point i'm like Zoos do a better job in some ways of like providing adequate but zoos enclosures. Get government funding. Well, some and do, and they get they charge admission yeah. and all these things. I learned that in order to qualify as a zoo, um, you have to be open a minimum of thirty six hours a week to the public. Wow. Um, which is which, and like if you're a wildlife sanctuary and like committed to allowing these animals to live whatever sort the best sort of life that they can, you probably don't want to just be open to the public. Yeah, no, they don't. I mean, especially because um, of you know, the way... You know, maybe some school groups and things. They do educational uh, things with schools, but um, I know that they're especially, they're like, we can't have it open to the public because when we allow people to come in, it's normally a very small group of five right. or six people. Um, also, every day they are walking yeah. their animals. 
the handlers take them out of the enclosures so that they get the necessary exercise. And they are walking bears and walking tigers along this big giant sanctuary on on a leash. leash, But they are walking them so you can't have hordes of people just walking around with popcorn in their hand. Yeah, I didn't I didn't they weren't walking anything when I was there. But I but but I've seen the photos and like on Instagram and Mm -hmm. Facebook. And when I see some of those things I'm like should you be advertising that you take your lion for a walk? Like, because what's going to happen is people are going to see that and say, I want one. And most of them are just going to comment that on Facebook and they don't really mean it. But some of them do mean it. And some of them are going to go out and try to, it's, it's depressingly easy to, like, buy an exotic animal in this country. Um, and elsewhere in the world. But I feel like that's a double-edged sword because, yes, but it's like saying, I want to walk on the moon. It's like, okay, then become an astronaut. <laughs> okay, you want to walk a tiger? Then become a become wildlife a biologist yeah. and then a volunteer and then work at the way station and yeah. donate your time. Then you'll be able to do it. It's, it's you know. Yeah, yeah. I just, I wonder if, if you know, if showing these animals in these situations being handled by humans, like, we know it's a bad thing when um you know when someone puts a video on youtube of their you know pet monkey like dressed in children's clothing or whatever mm-hmm. um like we'd all agree or most of us would agree that that's like setting a bad example yes is there a difference when it's a wildlife sanctuary showing video of you walking a lion on a leash maybe i mean certainly like what what the uh, you know the the original like the function of that activity is different and they're obviously not pretending that their animals are people yeah um but from an impact perspective i don't know is someone going to see that video and like probably without the context the way that things are shared on the internet and say wait i want to have a tiger that i can walk on a leash i don't know hopefully not hopefully people understand that these are caretakers that are very invested in the well-being of these animals and that are doing this with the very specific objective of giving them and providing them some of their central needs which are exercise in this case um and and stimulation yeah and so it's absolutely important yeah my my question is just about it's about the posting publicizing it yeah yeah um i can't believe we've gone almost an hour without like talking about what i thought we might talk about which is like well so you're i mean we still have some time so uh this might be a good place to like wrap up is you're an actress now like full time Um, (laughs) but like you used to actually do you used to like do marine biology research yes so i wanted to hear about like you don't talk about that that often or maybe i just don't take the time to ask about that that (laughs) um but i want to hear about what you were doing like about your previous scientific life in my previous scientific life um i was focused on elasmobranchiology which are sharks and rays exactly and is that actually a word elasmobranchiology yep i just call it shark science it it is (laughs) honestly it's like saying um oceanographic engineering is a fancy word for marine sciences or ocean science um it's the same thing and for me i i think that i fell in love with it when i was a kid um, again, in this house that we would summer in, I would summer in with my in father in, in the Keys. In the Keys. Um, my my father had, like, we, we had a little private beach with a dock. I mean, it was very fancy schmancy. And I got to be in the water every single day. I didn't care about everything else. I mean, the house was falling apart. It was a shack, but we <laughs> bought it for the property. Right. All we wanted to do was be on a canoe and a kayak every single day on the water and, and scuba dive. And I've been doing that since I was a kid. So you got scuba certification when you were like a kid? Um, I got scuba certified when I was 13. Oh, I wow. think at the time, the legal limit was um, 
16. I had to be 16, but okay. because I was large enough, okay. um, I'm tall and big, so I could fit the equipment I that see. wasn't designed for kids. Um, I was able to get certified. I've been doing it for a really long, yeah, time. long time. Yeah. And um, definitely one of those things that's an eye opener and I feel like is enriching in its own right. But for me, I was always geared towards, I want to study sharks. I want to be a marine biologist. So I need to get this. I was 14 and I remember like that was what was my Christmas present my dad would ask me and I'd be like I want um a dive computer and then you know he'd be like well what do you want for this year and I was like I want a dive certification (laughs) I want another course and I want another specialty course and that was all I did um and I went to the Canary Islands and that's where I started my studies and it the Canary Islands in hindsight, I think provided me with a very good education, solid education. But at the time I thought, because I'm not in a fancy big university, I'm probably not getting the best. I mean, we have, we use chalkboards in Spain as opposed to PowerPoint presentations. (laughs) We have no projectors. But you were getting like the best kind of field education. I was, absolutely. But it wasn't included in the curriculum. If you're gonna be a field researcher, that's what you need. But it wasn't included in the curriculum. So like those in the classroom, it's very old school and it was literally just a person talking and you taking notes until you had calluses (laughs) on your fingers from writing and just trying to take as many notes and then still comparing them to the person next to you. And in a class of, um, we started out in, in the first year in undergrad, 400 people. Um, I was, I think out of maybe 400, there were 20 girls at the beginning, um, by the, Third year when I left, it was 150, and there was only three girls. Wow. Um, and then I went to Australia um, to continue my studies. And in Australia, I was at James Cook University, which is highly reputable. Yeah, it's like a, it's a research institution. Exactly. It's huge. It was, you know, one of those things where it's like my parents put their savings in to try and send me there. I thought I was going to get the best education in the world. Little did I know that when I got there, the facilities were amazing. The labs were incredible. They had all the highest tech, you know, tools that I ever could ever want. We had the Great Barrier Reef and a lot of our pracs were in the Great Barrier Reef. So that was amazing. But it was like a paid vacation because at the end of the day, the content of the curriculum, I realized was a couple years behind. Like almost what US. I had been doing in Spain. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know what the U.S. standards are because I've never studied in the States. Um, so... But um, the great thing about, you know, studying in Australia was that in my summers, they had a partnership with SeaWorld, hmm. which I know is very controversial. Yeah, but they do a ton of research um, and conservation. Exactly. Too. And so I would get to work there and work with their researchers and I would get hands-on experience just seeing the interactions and seeing these animals and um, being in the shark tank and kind of helping. I mean, honestly, I was just cleaning up poop and... and <laughs> that's, how, that's how it starts. Exactly. Right? Um, but then I... I you know, once I finish studying, it's that that moment of like, what do I want to do? Right. What, what do I want my life to be? What do I want my career to be? Now I'm done studying. Now the world is my oyster. I could go try and continue research. I could go into my master's. I could go, you know, pursue some more education. And somehow I felt like I wasn't doing what would have the most impact. Okay. Um, science is a very, um, passionate career that you have to be into. Um, it's something that you pursue because you are inquisitive and because you want to potentially impact the scientific world. 
But at the same time, it's very underpaid. It's very tough to get the grants that you yes. want in order to do the research that you want. And you end up like I remember at one point when um, we were trying to apply for grants. It's like we couldn't do it for the research that we wanted because it wasn't, quote unquote, I guess, glamorous enough mm. or whatever it yeah. was or popular enough at the time. Um, and then you end up counting polyps. Right. You know, and, and that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I felt like if I could potentially succeed in a different branch, I could still have enough of a platform to provide and shed some light on the issues that are still important to me. And maybe I could even do more good. Right. But that's, I mean, you obviously are interested in acting Full -time. itself, yeah. not just because it's a useful platform to... Of course not. <laughs> I, I've, I fell in love with the idea of acting because, honestly, I've never had more fun in my entire life. Acting is a highly overpaid job <laughs> for something that I would do for free, right. personally. Um, I, I enjoy embodying other characters, trying to experience the emotions. Somebody the other day, um, David Blue, phrased it as, you're almost like an arm, armchair psychologist or something of yeah. yourself and all these characters, and okay. you're trying to understand yeah. why they do what they do. And um, and it was it was just so much fun. I realized, why not take my career and make it what I think is the most fun and make my hobby what I think is the most enriching right. as opposed to vice versa. And you can use the one as a platform to exactly. push the other. And then little did I know that I would, because I, I literally, I mean, I turned my back on science <laughs> completely and I moved to LA and pursued acting and that's all I wanted to do. And I was like, I have to focus 100% of my energies onto doing this. Sure. Um, because if not, That's I'm not going to succeed. Yeah. Exactly. And little did I know, slowly but surely, opportunities have come up where people have been interested in the science background and in, you know, science communication, maybe what I could do with that. And it's been feeding my acting career. So now I'm very fortunate that I get to do both. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that's, it seems like it's probably a rare set of attributes. Like there's a lot of famous people, a lot of actors and celebrities who are into issues of animal welfare or issue, into issues of conservation. Um, that that but they don't necessarily have the scientific background to really understand the issues and the problems, um, or to really, you know, to be more than a pretty face as a part of a as a part of a campaign. Like yeah. you know, they they may not be able to actually talk about these issues. Right. Um, so someone who is, is, is extra good, you know, it's, I think it's funny because, um, I actually see the reverse side of that a lot in the scientific community, which is interesting. Like, yes, in the acting community, I don't see a lot of, um, I mean, I'm very fortunate to know a few that are, you know, great including the sirens and, um, that are passionate about science and, and science literacy. But at the same time where I see it most is in the science community, all of our friends, that are either scientists or science communicators are extremely evolved when it comes to their creativity. So whether that be in writing, whether it be in dancing, whether it be in, in musical instruments yeah. or anything else, I actually see it constantly. So I'm surrounded by it. So to me, it doesn't seem like an anomaly. And if it keeps working and it gets me, you know, work yeah. and I mean, stuff, I think, great. I think but being creative or being involved in art in some some sense, even if like you're not a particularly talented artist. Um, is, what are you trying to say, Jason? Is, I'm not, I, I, that's the general you, <laughs> not the you you. Um, I think it. I think it makes you a better scientist. I think it makes you a better science communicator. Um, True. It teaches you to think uh, about things in different ways. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I think it's a fantastic place for us to end. Um, so oh, why don't you tell all the nice people at home where they can find you on the internet? And, um, and not on the internet? And not on the internet. My, my address is, uh, no, you can find me on social media, Twitter, I'm Christina underscore Ochoa. On Instagram, I missed out on the same um, handle, so I'm Ochoa Christina. And uh, other than that, you can check out the no-brainer website, which is kbwebsite.com. And soon on Geek Nation's network, because we are transitioning to a show and podcast on their platform. Excellent. And as I remind everybody every week, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter um, at jgold85, on Facebook at facebook.com slash jason.goldman. And you can listen to all of the previous episodes of The Wildlife um, on iTunes or on Stitcher or on the Earth Touch website, uh, earthtouchnews.com.